Thank you for listening. This is Israel Rebound, a podcast joining listeners in Nebraska and other places to Israel, exploring the ties that bind us through culture, identity, and current events. I'm Liz Feldstern in Jerusalem, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alan Podash in California. Alan, how you doing? Liz, I'm doing great. Thank you. Um, so many things for us to talk about today. The world is as crazy as usual, but mm-hmm. we're also... We're also in America in the middle of the observance of Tisha B'Av. You in, in Israel, you've already had this uh, observance. Um, we have. We're just ahead of you. <laughs> uh, so I think it would be interesting for us to kind of talk a little bit about Tisha B'Av. And then it w- we need to kind of address the current conflict that is taking place between uh, Israel and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And then on a lighter note, to close with, uh, I think what is considered, a, in my mind, a, a cute little holiday called Tuba Av. I don't know if you want to close on on Tuba Av, but uh, it's a it's an interesting little holiday. Yeah, that's a good plan. Let's try and uh, hit on all those topics. So, starting with Tisha B'Av, I guess. Um, I you know I kind of figure listeners have a basic familiarity with the holiday, a fast day, uh, arguably the saddest day on the Jewish calendar. And just in terms of what it looked like here in Jerusalem for for me this year. So because we are lucky to live where we do in Jerusalem, we're quite close to what's called the Tayelet or the promenade. And there are a number of congregations in Jerusalem that hold their Tisha B'Av evening service and the reading of Eicha, the Book of Lamentations, right on the Tayelet outdoors. And it's an amazing place to be able to read that book. Um, you know, the book itself, I mean, I won't go into it. People that want to look it up or refresh their memories if they didn't just hear it recently you know, tells a devastating story of what it was like for uh, Jerusalem to be conquered, destroyed, and for people to wind up in exile. And to read that very sad text while sitting, you know, people traditionally sit on the floor for the reading of Eicha. It's done, even if you're indoors where you have lights by, by candlelight or by flashlight. And in this case, we're outdoors. So you do need the flashlights. Um, and to read that text while looking out at today's modern day Jerusalem, including the old city, uh, much of East Jerusalem can be seen from this view on the promenade. It's it's pretty incredible. Um, and so we were fortunate to be able to do that this year. Um, One thing I did notice, and I think that it was because the holiday happened to fall on a Saturday night this year, which is not always the case, but because it was a Saturday night, the multiple congregations and fairly large groups of Jews that were there on the Tayelet were not the only ones on the Tayelet. There were quite a number of small groups and families um, of Arabs who my guess is it's their sort of regular 
Saturday night routine or outing because their neighborhoods are also quite close to this promenade to come for a stroll. It's a beautiful location. It's a gorgeous view. Um, It has walking paths and, you know, water fountains and is, I said we needed flashlights, but for a park at night, it's barely well lit. So it's a nice place for people to be able to stroll. There's grass, people sit, you can picnic. Um, And so you had this interesting mix of these large congregations. I mean, I saw at least, mm, I don't know, four or five different large groups, each of over, I don't know, over 75 people, I would say, each one. Those were the, you know, Jewish groups doing Tisha B'Av services. And then you had sprinkled throughout all of these, what looked like, to me, families, you know, with mixed ages and different small groups of of people strolling or sitting and smoking a Nargila water pipe. Um, and it was just sort of a, an interesting mix. Oh, you're muted. You talk about the different congregations, the different gatherings of the different communities. Were people observing Tishabab differently, or are people doing pretty much the same standard uh, stuff? So the congregations that were there are each a little bit different. Um, one is a conservative congregation where people were sitting, you know, men and women mixed, even in the very beginning, which is an actual prayer service, not just the reading of the uh, Book of Lamentations, but also the regular evening service, right? And men and women chanted Eicha itself. Um, there was another congregation, which is an Orthodox egalitarian congregation. So in that uh, community, the women participate equally, but they do sit separ- separately for prayer services. And there were also, there was a sort of traditional Orthodox congregation where it was only men who were reading from the book of Eicha and leading the prayer service. And I also saw groups of some sort of summer youth trip who actually did not look to me to be reading the book of Eicha. I don't know for sure if they were aware that it was Tisha B'Av or they were celebrating Tisha B'Av, but they were doing a Havdalah service. And they were, you know, standing in a circle with a candle and singing and had their arms around each other. And it looked like a pretty regular Havdalah service. It didn't seem to have any of the, you know, more somber tones of Tisha B'Av. So you really had the entire spectrum of not the entire spectrum, but a good swath of the religious spectrum of Jewish observance. Any any conflicts that came up about the different groups and the different practices, especially with such a diverse group of people and in a, in a, also with the um, Arab neighbors coming together? I mean, that's a, that's yeah, a so, bottleneck. Yeah, yeah. So, you're, uh, so your question sort of connects to the sort of last caveat that I just brought up is that it really isn't the entire spectrum, right? There were no um, ultra-Orthodox services there. And really, not to point fingers, but especially right after Tisha B'Av, when we're supposed to be thinking about, you know, loving one another and all of that, 
But I think it would be fair to say that that is the group that historically has here and there had issue with other types of religious observances going on, right? And so there there wasn't anyone there who, even if they wouldn't choose it for themselves, would certainly publicly or maybe even vocally at all, you know, object to another group of people that maybe has a more liberal take on what a service should look like or how women can or cannot participate. So no, there was no conflict between the groups that I could see, and I, I wouldn't have expected to. Um, between the Jewish and the non-Jewish people who are on the Tayelet, I also didn't see any conflict, but I did notice that there was um, a quite visible police presence that was probably there to make sure that there wouldn't be any conflict between you know the different groups. At one point, I heard you know, maybe one of the groups of young Arabs got a little bit loud. I think they were just socializing amongst themselves. But I did see the police officers go over and they must have told them, you know, keep it down. There's a religious service going on. So, you know, um, there, it was clear that there were different groups there. And I guess the potential for tension or conflict, but I didn't see any actual conflict. So that. That's that's good to know. I have two questions that kind of popped up of that um, scenario. Were, would people feel comfortable going from different group to different group to observe how they were doing uh, the service? Or people pretty much stay in their group? So I think that probably most of the people that were there were coming to a specific congregation because that's the congregation they normally go to or they're familiar with or or what have you. But, you know, if for some reason they couldn't find their group, you know, most people would not wildly object to joining one of the others. Um, now, maybe I'm just, you know, reading into it the way I feel because I don't mind being at any of those services. Um, you know, um, I guess people go where they are most comfortable, where they know people. Um, you know, I'm sure there are those who would not be comfortable in a service where women can read Eicha, and there are people who would not be comfortable in a service where women are prohibited from reading Eicha. You know, it wouldn't be their first choice. If there wasn't any other place to go, you know, would they go there and say, okay, this isn't my choice, but it's fine? Probably. Um, but, uh, you know, we have a lot of Jews here, so we have a lot of options. <laughs> That's good. The The follow-up to just the timing of Tisha B'Av is that this conflict with the the Palestinian Islamic Jihad kind of started on Friday. Friday, yeah. Tisha was Saturday. Did, did you get a sense of any of that conflict taking place during um, your Tisha B'Av observance? Did you see tension in Jerusalem? What are you seeing in terms of the reaction to the current um, conflict? So on Friday, just before Shabbat, you know, we became aware that there were rising tensions, that there had been military actions and retaliations could be expected. And so we were just 
sort of low level on alert. I say that because we're in Jerusalem, right? Other parts of Israel, when you're on alert, it's already sort of starts much higher on, on the ladder because rockets for the most part are not likely to fall in Jerusalem. Historically, you know, even a, the Islamic Jihad has not wanted to fire rockets at Jerusalem because their chances of, you know, hitting holy Muslim sites hitting Muslim people are quite high. So it just doesn't make sense, right? Um, so, so in Jerusalem, we know that it's not super likely to happen, but we were aware, you know, to sort of have a half an ear cocked that should we hear a siren, um, we would be able to go down to our um, secure room, which for us is in the basement of our building. And in fact, um, so that secure room in our particular building is behind a locked door because there's a locked door and then that leads you to all of the um, like storage rooms that each apartment has. And down in that same area is where this secure room is. And uh, Yonatan said to me on Friday, you know, should I go down and unlock that locked door? Right. So that if there was a siren and if people went running down the stairs, it would you wouldn't have to then find a key and get the door open before you could get in, that it would be that little bit faster. So we did think about it. Right. And I said, yeah, OK, I guess it makes sense. So fine, you do a little something. It's like an insurance policy in my mind. You do that, then you won't need to go running down. Um, and in fact, we didn't have to. I um, uh, in the evening, you know, out at the toilet. I really don't think that any of the police presence or, you know, was related to these most recent tensions. I assume it really was just a product of knowing that they were going to be large groups of people and it's a Saturday night. So you have a lot of, you know, other people as well that aren't part of the religious services. So just as a safety measure, right, to have police there. Um, and during the day today, I, we weren't out and about because it was a fast day. We were kind of conserving our energy at home, uh, but following the news, you know, not. So I don't know about any particular tensions or things that happen, but certainly people have been following what's going on. Do you think that it's calming down or it's escalating or, you know, the current situation is such that lots of rockets have been fired it, into Israel? We just talked about that. and. Israel is responding with, uh, in the way they do. I mean, it's, it's just one of these things that it's happens. It does. They tend to happen in the summertime always. Uh, so I guess we were due for it. Um, whether it will, you know, flare up more or, or quiet down, it's hard to say. There were some rumors today that there was going to be a ceasefire. And as of tonight, it's clear that right now there's not going to be a ceasefire. So we'll wait and see. Um, yeah, I mean, these things, right, each one sort of takes its own course. And you can't really know whether it's going to escalate more before it wraps up or if, you know, we're mostly done with it. No, but the news reports are that this is a smaller group within Gaza that has a strong connection with Iran and that it's possibly, a, you know, a proxy war between Iran and Israel. 
I mean, I think we sort of know, right, that all of the hostilities that have happened are in some sense a proxy war because, you know, none of the weapons that are being fired against Israel are completely homemade, right? They're all made possible because of other countries providing equipment and supplies and know-how and and whatever else. So it's, you know, I don't know how new that is. Is it more frightening because it's Iran? Maybe. Um, But it's not new that it's not just sort of Israel facing a small, you know, terrorist group in Gaza. They have always been connected to other countries, other actors, other terrorist groups who want to provide money or weapons or what have you because of their own interests. So I think that dynamic is um, unfortunately not new. And their and their interest is to destroy Israel. Uh, yes, they have that shared interest. So, <laughs> okay. Well, let's not dwell on that too much. Um, but I think it is something we need to pay close attention to. And then how the media media tells the story. You know, the media usually likes to look at the underdog versus the stronger party. Uh, I know there's been some controversy already with media reporting out of Gaza and how it's being interpreted across the world. There's a situation where, uh, according to Israel, and now confirmed by other outlets, that uh, a rocket that was fired out of Gaza crashed within a community in Gaza, killing children and uh, civilians that... um, the PIG were blaming Israel on, but it's been turned out that it's not not the fault of Israel, but the fault of an internal uh, rocket that went awry. Yeah, I would also just flag that while we always sort of try to keep an eye on how the media portrays conflicts like this, in this particular case, there's the interesting added um, factor that Israel's military action against known terrorist leaders and now you know the the backlash of that is happening just days after the United States carried out a military action against a known terrorist leader the head of al-Qaeda and so that comparison of how does the media cover it and who is seen as doing something heroic and who is seen as a terrorist and who is seen as an aggressor and who's the victim um, is something that we can have a, a very interesting read, right, on how the two are treated differently or similarly. That is a very, very good point. Uh, on, a, on another note, as we come to the close of our podcast, um, there's a fairly light holiday coming up at the end of the week called Tuba Av, the 15th of Av. Um, I've referred to it as kind of the Valentine's Day of of uh, the Israel of the Hebrew calendar. Is it uh, observed in, in Israel that much? Yeah, so um, I think the Valentine's Day of the Hebrew calendar is a fairly appropriate way to characterize Tuba Av. So, right, we had, so we've just had Tish Av, the ninth of Av, and as you pointed out, Tubi Av, while it sounds similar, is different, it's the 15th of Av, and um, is this this minor holiday 
which I think began as a celebration coinciding with the grape harvest, right? Lots of our Jewish holidays are connected to agriculture. And nowadays is often considered to be sort of the the holiday of love. And interestingly, I I would not say that it's a holiday that's widely celebrated in Israel. There's, you know, there's no special meal that goes with it. And we know how big we are on meals. Um, there's not even a special food that really goes with kebab. But the only sort of recognition of this holiday that, you know, other than it being marked on calendars, maybe, is that I I have seen that stores try to commercialize this holiday and make it a bit of a Valentine's Day, as you mentioned. So trying to sell chocolates and flowers and, and cards and things like that. And interestingly enough, those actual products, to my American eyes, I can tell, are sometimes the leftovers from the previous Valentine's Day in the U.S. that have now made their way to Israel to attempt to be sold once again. Not the flowers, I guess, but the the chocolates and the cards. Um, So that's kind of funny to just see things that are clearly made for Valentine's Day and now trying to be sort of shoved into the niche of Tubav. So Israel gets the leftover candies from Valentine's Day five months later. We, we definitely do. And it's actually not the only time where Israel gets the American leftovers. The other time of the year where this is very visible is around Sukkot time, right? When the decorations that people are buying to decorate their various uh, Sukkot, some of them are definitely leftover Christmas decorations from the U.S. So, so that's another time where one person's, you know, leftovers can be another person's holiday decor. As as long as there's a discount, right? As long as there's a discount, and also, I guess, for Israelis, you know, where Christmas isn't a thing here, they don't have the same connotations of red and green tinsel that we Americans would have, right? We see it and we immediately think, okay, that's clearly a Christmas decoration, whereas an Israeli can see it and just say, no, it's red and it's green. Why? Those are two nice colors. Why not put them up together? (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. Anything else, Liz, you want to share this week? Um, That's all. Just hoping everybody is staying cool and staying healthy. And we'll look forward to, to speaking with everyone again soon. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Israel Rebound, our podcast, exploring Israel and the ties that bind us. Thanks. Thank you.